everybody. It is Simon Wu and Alex Miller. And we are back now live from RTX in Austin, Texas, this week with your seventh Wiki Game Guides Comcast after our marathon session with Dan, which we should thank him for coming on. We had a great time. Good to hear his insight being live from E3 and all with John. Hopefully we can do it again sometime. Now, we aren't having any guests this week. Obviously, the logistics would be just, frankly, impossible. But we're going to start it off, as always, with our community callback segments. So, Alex, let's get started. And our uh, first couple of comments actually come from the iTunes page. And real quick, I'd just like to remind you guys to go ahead and uh, subscribe, rate, do all that stuff so we can jump up the list as far as we can so more people can find the podcast and more people can hear what you guys have to say. Grant Kelly says Simon's the best, five stars, and said, Great podcast. You guys really know your stuff. Keep up the good work. So that was our iTunes comment for this week. Thanks for that, and everyone else uh, join in and say he was helpful in that. Uh, next is Talufukshan. Sorry, I just butchered your username, but regardless, with a couple of comments. First one is a late podcast five saying, uh, great podcast, as usual. I find myself looking forward to each new episode the way I only used to look forward to the new Two Chimps episode. Keep up the good work. Thanks for that, and uh, hopefully you guys are excited about it. I know Simon and I are excited every time we get to record, because we have a lot of fun with it. We hope you guys have a good time listening to it, and obviously, when you guys have been downloading it a bunch, hopefully that's the case. All right, these next... Uh, four or so comments are actually basically a conversation between uh, a few of our listeners, including Soul Fluxion, so that we like to see that. We like to see that discussion being generated about these topics that you guys are passionate about. That's what it's all about. So I think that for these comments, Alex and I are going to take it as if we were the two people involved uh, in the conversation. So I'll start. This is Soul Fluxion speaking. I have to agree on everything you said about the Republic slash Imperial Commando series. I totally recommend the books and the game, and I'm pissed about the series being murdered as well. Great podcast, by the way. And then Scumbag Ben replies, I remember uh, Republic Commando very well. In my eyes, it was a better tactical shooter than Rainbow Six. To which Solifluxion responds at Scumbag Ben, Yeah. The only thing I didn't like was the fact that even though every member of Delta Squad was introduced as having a specialty, everyone was equally capable. Sev was as good a slicer as Fixer. Scorch was as good a sniper as Sev, etc. Scumbag Ben says, God damn it. Now I have to find my old copy of that game and play through it for the twelfth time. Alright, so that's the conversation there. Yeah, it's a tried and true favorite for me. And I would just like to mention as a public service announcement for everyone out there. Karen Travis actually revealed in an FAQ on her website how she would have ended the series with Imperial Commando 2. Basically a bullet point of all the major plot endings and resolutions. Now, this is major spoilers. If you haven't finished it or if you're looking into the series, read the books first. We've included the link. Take a look at that. And I was look, thinking about recently just going through that entire series again because it was brought back such good memories because it wasn't just your normal Star Wars story of Jedi go somewhere, hack and slash a bunch of people, save the day. It really got into the nitty-gritty of just a couple of ordinary folks and kind of their struggles with the world, and it really fleshed out 
the, the Star Wars universe in a way that I'd never seen before. Just the day-to-day minutia, which brought a whole level of immersion. Yeah, and I mean, Simon, like I said last podcast, this is why I was looking forward, or, and still am, looking forward to that new uh, sort of legendary Star Wars TV show that's the live action, not, not the cartoon. Never the cartoon. But the live action TV that was supposed to just be down to the street sort of thing, and it's one of the reasons I am, as I said last time, really looking forward to Star Wars 1313, because I think it's going to have that same sort of character of down-to-earth, fight-for-survival sort of bits versus, as you said, mythical Jedi running around. And for any of those who are are fans of Karen Travis and disappointed that the series did not continue, I would heartily recommend it. I know Simon does as well. The, uh, The Halo novels, which she has written a few of, and I think she has a recent one. I think it's Halo Glasslands. Is that correct, Simon? Yeah, that's correct. This, that's the first one detailing what happens after Halo 3, before Halo 4, especially in terms of what we've seen at the trailers at E3, the press release, and hopefully, Alex, what we'll see later on the floor here at RTX, the UNSC Infinity and that entire storyline, the Spartan 4s, that's all prefaced in Glasslands, and that's going to be a trilogy. The second one second book in that series is scheduled to be released sometime soon. Next, we have Bane, who writes, Just found the podcast, and I've got to say, it's a great listen. Intelligent and very interesting. The idea of Nintendo going the way of Rim, spot on. Anyway, I'm halfway through episode six, but I will be downloading the other five podcasts. Keep it up. It's a great compliment to John and Dan's podcast. I, Simon, I feel, I mean, reading these every time, I feel sort of like we're just fluffing up our own egos, but once again, just thank you for saying these Wonderful things, and as we've just seen here, we got a new listener. You don't have to be someone who's been following us from the beginning. In fact, we would hope that if you enjoy what we do, if you enjoy the podcast, that you can go ahead and show it to some of your friends or whatever it may be. Just sort of share it and get the word out and show it to as many people as you can. So hopefully we can incorporate as many people into this and, and uh, really speak to as many people as possible. Yeah, that's right. To that point, hopefully, having Dan on the podcast and having it in the Two Chimps feed, which everyone can peruse if they aren't subscribed to our feed, hopefully that'll get us a new listener base. Hopefully a lot more people are tuning in. And so uh, the number of emails that we had this week was just one, and it's uh, pretty short. I feel like it was in response to that, that mega post that we had last week, just users scaling back a bit, but that's completely okay. Susia writes, Awesome podcast. Really want to see Dan and John both on at some point in the future, as do we. When you talk about Steam getting into the console race, I can see that happening because the console side just isn't doing it for Valve. They aren't on the Wii or PS3. Well, Steam works, but that's a whole nother story. And Valve's relation with Microsoft has soured recently. The Xbox versions of Left 4 Dead and other games still cost a ton of money, and while the DLC has basically been given away, they're so cheap, they, on the PC, I guess, they still cost a full amount on Xbox Live. Parentheses, I admit, this might be Microsoft's doing. That being said, Valve could be chomping at the bit to import its fire sale style way of selling games and content as opposed to Microsoft's stubbornly high static prices for even ancient games. I agree with Dan's comments that co-op in Dead Space 3 is only adding to it. A game isn't prohibited from spanning multiple genres, and it can be both horror and action shooter in different modes. It can add significant replay value while making it easier on the development by reusing assets, but the execution will need to be engaging and not tacked on. 
Also, you guys really need to talk about the Mass Effect ending DLC and what it means for the game as a whole. I'm really interested in what you guys have to say. Keep up the good work. We'll go through those one at a time. Again, uh, I've said this before, but uh, I'm not really the Steam guy. Alex is, but as far what I do know is that my friends that all use Steam a lot more actively than I do are always talking about how they just got 40 games for like $20 because they were all pennies each and how there can be basically like this new game, Christmas sale, 80% off. It came out like two weeks ago, but you save like $40 on it. And I think given that games on demand and DLC from Microsoft, even if it's the earliest, like, let's say, Call of Duty 2 map pack, I don't know if that actually exists, but if it was 1,600 Microsoft points, then you can probably bet it's still 1,600 Microsoft points. Probably not going to be the more, more reasonable 80 or so. Yeah, and then, I mean, it, it, it would be interesting to see them spread of the console because I don't think, given their current relationship, I think the uh, the listener is correct here, that sort of rocky relationship there with Microsoft, sort of a clash of styles, you could say. And I guess we will see what happens. Uh, as I said before, I definitely I think it'd be interesting. Yet I'm not sure how they would spread to console while maintaining their uh, sort of diehard PC fan base. I think, as I said, it'd be interesting to see what happens. As for the Mass Effect ending DLC discussion, you are in luck because that is something we have planned. We are going to give our thoughts on the Mass Effect 3 uh, extended cut DLC. Yeah, and just to hit that the middle point we sort of skipped over there, I definitely agree with the emailer saying that uh, it needs to be fully flushed out, not be tacked on, because for me personally, that's one of the most frustrating things in games, is when you're playing something and it's a neat little feature or whatever that they added on, it seems like it's just sort of for the for the back of the box sort of thing. If it, and if it feels just tacked on, I can tell it, and I'm sure every gamer can. You know when the developers just sort of called it in and just threw something in just for the hell of it. And it doesn't feel like it was something that was really planned out. So hopefully that's not the case here, because if it is fully developed and done correctly, I think it could be very interesting. And I think, as I said, spanning genres can make the replay value that much greater and that much more interesting. If people start to see it as an action game in some respects, that could allow this game to break out of its niche audience and get a lot more of the people from COD and from Halo, from Gears of War, and actually make them interested in what Dead Space has to offer. And before you know it, okay, well, they try the co-op, the action that they're used to. Why don't we delve into single player? And then why don't we figure out what more of the story is. Why don't we play Dead Space 2 than Dead Space 1? Maybe even if they're more like me, they'll even read the novels. So I think this is an excellent plan to, if executed correctly, as you say, Alex, it could bring the game and the entire franchise subsequently to a much broader audience. Yeah, and as we talked about before, anything that can really differentiate itself from COD and take developer dollars. I mean, as Dan said, COD in a way is just as debilitating to the gaming industry as these casual games are just because it is the same thing rehashed over and over. And so anything that can go in the same market and sort of, I guess, take market share away from it, diversify games a little bit, force 
developers to come up with new and more interesting things, new IPs, what have you, I think that's nothing but a good thing for the industry. Yeah, and so we're going to move on now. We're going to end with our usual comments that if you'd like to chip in, you can do so in the comments form below, or you can uh, email us at comcastwgg at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes. It's the easiest way to get all of this content freshly served whenever we make it and you don't have to worry about it and while you're there give us five stars write a review say everyone else was helpful we'd really appreciate it yeah and i guess we'll just go ahead and do the uh our ever-present dixical routine where we go ahead and list out some of the things we've been playing recently and for me well lately it's been around total war i've been pulling out a, an old one a personal favorite of mine that uh I saw the uh, announcement recently that uh, Sega just unveiled Total War Rome 2 to be uh, released sometime mid to late 2013. And of course, as soon as I saw that, I freaked out and had my little nerd moment and went and researched everything and read all the interviews and saw what limited pictures there are, saw the live action trailer, and that just got me all excited again. And I went back and played the game. and been having a, a really good time with that. I have been continuing with building things in Minecraft, continuing with Left 4 Dead 2, but also recently I went back to Halo Reach, and not for your usual deathmatch, slayer, capture the flag, or anything like that, but I've been playing a lot of the race tracks and kind of race game types that have been developed, and really the first time that I've done that uh, for Reach, and having seen a lot of these being perfected over time and people really getting to use the Forge tools really well, it's pretty amazing the stuff they can come up with. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I remember, Simon, I think it was uh, back in the Halo 3 days, I think I was over at your house once and saw your brother messing around with a, uh, a racetrack. I think that was the, the first time I'd ever seen that done in a, in a Halo game, but I know that it's sort of been a bit of a personal favorite for you just sort of messing around with that a little breath of fresh air when you consider it's inside of a shooting game it's nice to mix it up a little bit and go ahead and go for a drive absolutely and on on your note i would like to say that i also am excited about rome 2 total war you you shared that link with me and i immediately watched the trailer and now i'm waiting with bated breath yeah and just the, the trailer is cool because Going back to something else we've talked about before, as we say every week, it was actually a live-action trailer, so, Simon, who are they making this for? But it looked awesome, and it really reminded me, actually, of one of my favorite TV series. Actually, it's uh, the HBO series Rome, and I, it was it was funny. I mean, obviously, a series about Rome and a game about Rome is going to look similar, but just the, uh, the production quality on the trailer, I thought, looked very good and got me excited for it. And for anyone looking for a good TV series, I definitely would recommend Rome. All right, that sounded a lot like cross-platform talk. Not really, but I'm going to use it as a way to crowbar in our segue to our first topic here, Microsoft's About Surface. Now, that's going to make more sense probably in the textual format, About Face, uh, Surface, get it? Now, we're only focusing on the gaming aspect of 
uh, this topic because if you want the news about the specs and all as pertains to just technology's sake, you can find a much more thorough review on The Verge or Engadget. So we're going to start off with a Wired article that says the full USB port and Windows 8 Pro, the full experience provided on the Surface Pro tablet is a key differentiator from the iPad and most other tablets, most of them being Android. And they said this was the case because you can plug in a wired Xbox controller or a wireless Xbox controller uh, with the USB receiver specifically designed to connect your Xbox controller to a Windows PC. So that means you'd be able to play full Xbox games which will be available on the included Windows 8 store with the entire Xbox gaming hub that they've included. Now, the cool thing about that, Simon, is that on tablets and Android phones, iPhones, what have you, really games, you've sort of been limited to touchy-touchy, pokey-pokey, what have you, but being able to use these new wireless controllers, that opens up a whole new avenue and a, a whole new area and direction for games on a mobile device and something that uh, has not been terribly stressed in sort of Microsoft's last two iterations of Windows, Windows 7 obviously and and Vista uh, is that you can actually plug in these wire controllers or if you have the wireless receiver you can also use a wireless controller and use that as a gamepad with gaming. I mean I know most PC gamers most likely they're going to go ahead and stick with a mouse and keyboard and if you're using a a gamepad you're probably a console gamer anyway but that capability has always been there and for myself personally I think that this could be huge given the full transition sort of away from a desktop environment for the Windows 8 to being on this sort of this more mobile platform Yes, and if every Xbox game will have complete parity across the PC and the console because of some kind of shared core infrastructure, then the controller schemes as well, if they're also ported successfully, this could be huge because, as we know, the, ma- the two major stumbling blocks on Windows 7 and Vista, which, why they weren't stressed, Alex, was because, one, Microsoft had kind of a half-hearted Games for Windows initiative There was uh, a software that you could download. It was a client that kind of managed it. The selection was always paltry. The amount that had fully supported games for Windows kind of communication and achievements, communication being able to contact people playing Xbox Live or other people on games for Windows, that selection was always incredibly small. And the other major problem with games for Windows Live, obviously, being that when you plugged in these Xbox controllers, be it wired or wireless, the controller scheme for any PC game is completely different from what the Xbox version is. If you've ever gone into the controller scheme for in the settings of a PC game, you'll know that there are 57 different commands, each assigned to a different hotkey on the keyboard. However, that doesn't translate well into the very simplified function of the Xbox controller, and even if you selected the gamepad setting, it often didn't work out exactly uh, the same way as the Xbox controller was mapped, because for some things, X 
for some games, X does a lot of different functions. But on a PC game, you can only assign one thing to it. And some things like clicking down thumbsticks weren't recognized as legitimate buttons. I mean, the selection was one thing, Simon, but I think the point you mentioned earlier, how it was sort of a, a third-party client in a way that was not particularly optimized. I, was sort of, I mean, Games for Windows Live was something that they sort of bolted on, it felt like, after the fact, and they tried to just sort of force people to use. And it didn't seem like it was that thoroughly flushed out in that well-done of a system. Yes, so... We're going to move on a bit to kind of speculating uh, how Microsoft could improve it. Obviously, we know that the software will be vastly improved and integrated with Windows 8, both on uh, Windows RT and full Windows 8 client. And so, what if for the next generation of Xbox controller hardware, Microsoft, instead of the kind of long and kludgy wireless receiver that you currently have to use... What if they used technology of their mice instead? Their mice are well known for having these nanotransceivers which protrude maybe a centimeter, if that, from the USB port. And that would be really flush with the device, wouldn't take up much room, would be much more portable. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think that is, that is really the key with this, is it's just sort of the slim form factor, how... Even when you plug it in, it's almost like it's not there. I know you have one of these for your mouse, and I think it's that almost sort of plug-in-and-forget aspect that would allow it to, wherever, you know, you, you pick up a controller, you're good to go. Yes, or what if we eliminate any kind of receiver at all? What if the communication is through Bluetooth for basically seamless communication between the controller and your Surface tablet? Then... Not only have you eliminated anything protruding from the device, you've now also freed up that single USB port for something else. Maybe a flash drive, which is containing save files or games. Perhaps save files from the Xbox, which you can transfer over. These are all possibilities that Microsoft could very well exploit in the next generation of hardware. And Simon, as you said before, uh, if there's a complete... I think I think your term was parody of Xbox games across all your devices. Having the room for that USB flash drive would just make even more sense, wouldn't it? Because you could just save your game on your tablet, move the USB, plug it into a computer, play there some, move it to your Xbox, what have you. But that way you're, you're taking your content everywhere and it's the same across all three. And I think for me... That's the coolest thing that I'm really looking forward to the most is just this experience where you're getting the same thing in three different locations. And Microsoft has even tailored the uh, hardware, unknowingly or knowingly, uh, very well for gaming on the go. The Surface has the kickstand, which they said when deployed tilts the device at 22 degrees, which puts the screen right up at the correct angle for your eyes, deploy it at the perfect angle, take out the wireless controller, no other hardware necessary, and just start playing games. That easy. Nothing else required. And that would be the best way to combine this kind of mobile casual game that we've seen on iPads, iOS, and Android with more conventional hardcore console platform shooters and uh, 
what have you. As I said before, Simon, most people who are going to be playing on a PC, generally there are going to be those who are using a mouse and keyboard. And, I mean, we've been talking a bit about uh, controllers here, about game pads. But I, I know when I'm walking around, I don't often have an Xbox 360 controller in my pocket. But, more likely, in my backpack or uh, whatever I might have with me, a lot more likely to have a mouse or some sort of laptop mouse, something small but that's very easily portable. And when you combine that with the awesome case that, and uh, well, actually it's a cover, for the Surface is going to have an actual keyboard built into it. And I think that way, if you don't feel like using a, a gamepad, you just flip that out, you plug in your mice or you use your Bluetooth mouse, and bam, you've got keyboard and mouse there, you're good to go. Exactly, and either whether you decide to use an Xbox gamepad or a more conventional PC gaming mouse and keyboard, you, can no, you should no longer have to settle for mobile-specific offshoots of games that are very limited by the touch interface. I remember Dan uh, and John running through uh, Mass Effect Infiltrator, and basically it was very limited in that you could only fire when the, you popped out of cover, and he would automatically fire because you had to use the entire screen to focus on the aiming. And so in that sense, you're very limited by what you can do. And if you had full power of movement, firing, control, because you had the right hardware, then that removes the limitations of these casual games or offshoots that try and masquerade as more hardcore titles. And I think, Simon, that ability to... Real quickly, I wouldn't say that they're going to be getting rid of any of those sort of things. I definitely think... uh, Maybe more mobile-specific offshoots are a possibility. However, hopefully some of the things we talked about last time with Dan where we see more of an accessory role for those title offshoots, hopefully that comes into play. But I think this sort of duality of having the sort of, I guess at this point, traditional games on a mobile device on a tablet that are just poke, touch, drag, do whatever with the touchscreen but then also this new ability to have a computer, a true full console-slash-PC gaming experience in the same thing, I think that's something that Microsoft and their new ecosystem where they're going to have these things across PC, Xbox, tablet, all these things, I think that's something that they can really leverage. Exactly. They have Xbox with the controllers and the hardcore gaming know-how. They've obviously got PCs. Now, that the hardcore gaming aspect they can certainly tighten much more in on the software end and then also on the phone where they're trying to work in more of Xbox Live services. So what I think is that you mentioned before we're not necessarily going to see the end of these mobile offshoots with limited touch controls. I think that's where the Microsoft Surface RT version is directly aimed at. It's got an ARM chipset, which is NVIDIA Tegra, what I believe to be Tegra 3, and considering NVIDIA's main focus, it's going to lend very well to gaming. They are, of course, chiefly manufacturers of graphics cards. And so I think that's where we're going to see more robust, but still kind of your more, what I guess we should call usual, 
casual games for tablets. Now, even more conventional gamers will probably feel decent with the Surface Pro version, which is running Intel's i5 Ivy Bridge refresh with the 22 nanometer die shrink, and more importantly, the Intel HD 4000 integrated GPU that we mentioned before, because that is what increased gaming power by, I think, times two. Combine that with the 1080p display and the fact that the port is USB 3.0 and the fact that it's not just the touch cover with capacitive buttons. Instead, the, f the cover is a full, usable, tactile keyboard with a full, usable, tactile touchpad and kind of click buttons. That is what is going to make hardcore gamers actually be able to understand a tablet interface a little more. I mean, Simon, this, uh, that, that tablet interface you mentioned, I, for, I mean, at least for the Pro version, it, it, it's interesting what they've done because it's not really a tablet, but it's not really a computer. I know we were listening to uh, the Windows Weekly podcast a little while ago and they were talking about how Microsoft is sort of trying to blur the lines there, but... I think I, f I think it's interesting that it's just sort of it's somewhere in between. It, this is exactly what Microsoft is aiming for. Microsoft, in the height of basically the iPad One and iPad Two, and as Android tablets started to make their first clumsy steps towards market acceptance, Microsoft kept trumpeting the line as they sold Windows Seven on slates that slates and tablets are PCs. They will not stop saying that, and so. Therein, by making this Surface Pro version blur the lines so much, I think it is the full embodiment of their philosophy. This is exactly what they want. Now, full Windows 8 also means that Steam and Origin and other gaming services will be available now. Uh, for people on the go in a completely new, different format. And Alex, you are our resident Steam user, so uh, I was wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit more about what that might mean. In in a word, excitement. I don't I don't know. I just the prospect of, I suppose you could say, having Steam in my pocket, so to say. I mean, it has to be a pretty big pocket, but have Steam, Origin. All these services, well, not Origin as much, I'm not as big a fan of that, but these sort of services that get your games on your PC that act sort of in a similar way to Xbox Live does on the, uh, on the Xbox 360, having that with you on the go in not a watered-down way, but in a, a fully featured, fully fleshed-out way, I think is something that could be really interesting, could be really fun and has me excited if they do it correctly. Yeah, and so we're going to leave this discussion here because it's actually going to carry over very well into our next discussion. But before we want to do that, we're going to debut a new segment here, which was suggested by Rare Daniel in the E3 podcast, where we'll just briefly say if we're excited about any of the games coming out in the next week or so. And uh, this was actually really exciting for us because we use we decided to see, all right, what's a good service that can aggregate release dates on games for us so that we really don't have to go out hunting? 
and turns out there's a service called GameMinder that has most of them inventoried. Now we were walking the RTX show floor and lo and behold they're one of the main sponsors and so we came across their booth and met a really nice guy Matthew McCroskey who works for Handelabra, the designers behind the system and so this is the service that we'll be using for this segment. Now for the coming week pickings are pretty slim I mean NCAA football 13 probably stand out now quantum conundrum we'll keep an eye on because Alex wasn't the uh, lead developer on this also um, chief at valve or some some high up in valve yeah he was actually the uh, the lead designer on the original portal game I want to say so therefore uh, definitely creative guys some very interesting things out of that other than that pretty unremarkable stuff yeah a so. couple, couple of ds games and mobile games but nothing really to write home about but i mean to be fair simon we're in the middle of the summer it's a bit of the dry season right so expect these segments to be pretty short until the fall when we'll be listing five or six titles a week so we said that the previous segment led very well into this next one and that's because uh we're actually going to talk about gaming on all three of Microsoft's services coming up with Windows Phone 8, Windows 8, and I don't know, Simon, is it going to be called Xbox 8? Well, we'll find out because uh, Microsoft might make it an 8 triple play, gaming on 8 on 8 on 8. Microsoft has talked extensively about what they term to be asynchronous gameplay, and that is to say that regardless of device, all data can be accessed and pretty much all features can be utilized, which basically means that many different games are going to be cross-platform. And we've seen this happen before, and it was a first, and it was a mediocre, and it was the only attempt at basically such an experiment. It was uh, the game Shadowrun, which um, incidentally, I believe uh, Rooster Teeth did a machinima series with. So basically... It completely failed because what ended up happening was mediocre PC users destroyed even the best Xbox gamers because the two systems just didn't match up correctly. Now, the hope here is that with Windows Phone 8, Windows 8, and hopefully the next-gen Xbox sharing a much more similar core with much more similar development schemes than and pro- uh, programming and coding schemes that it'll match up much more nicely and uh, this will actually become commonplace. Now, closing down Windows Phone 8 and the Windows 8 ecosystem had a lot of people up in arms. Firstly, it was Windows Phone 8 with the very regimented hardware requirements and obviously next, Windows 8 with the Surface announcement Microsoft releasing their own tablet with a very specific list of specs. But this is probably good for the ecosystem because if you really want to deliver consistent experiences across the different platforms you're going to have to mandate some sort of standard because your tiny little netbook is not going to be able to keep up with the Xbox and if you have a subpar budget smartphone it's not going to match up with those either yeah I mean mean, this is something we've already begun to see with Windows Phone 7 because since the announcement of that operating system, they were very 
very rigid on okay these are the bottom line basic specs you must have your device cannot run Windows Phone 7 if it does not meet these requirements I mean that was a way to solve the issue they'd had before with Windows Mobile 6.5 and 6. whatever all the going back all the way where it was scattered to hell in the same way that Android is now where it's just so fragmented that something that may run on one Android phone has a very good chance of not running on another and that could be because of specs or it could even be because of the UI laid on top of the actual Android. So we've already talked about extensively about gaming on Windows 8 um, in both our previous segments and in previous uh, episodes of the podcast. Now let's talk about a little more about uh, gaming on Windows Phone 8 proper. The current Games Hub and the experience as we know it right now will get an upgrade. The Games Hub will become uh, basically just retitled as the Xbox Hub with Smart Glass included standard. Right now, it's an Xbox companion app which is available to download in the marketplace. But what we see here is that they're trying to bring all the brands together and make sure it's there from day one because if this is going to be their premier second screen push, then obviously they're going to want to make it standard, basically going to want to make a consistent experience across all platforms. But more importantly on the back end, the core shared with Windows 8. They made a big deal about this at the Windows Phone 8 Apollo press release and the uh, event. They said there's going to be a consistent core that developers are going to be able to use native code and DirectX, C, C++, and that'll make it much easier from a developer's perspective because what that means is they push another button or with minimal editing, they can have a game simultaneously released for Windows 8 and Windows Phone 8. And so, Alex, um, you talked a lot about the regimented hardware specs for Windows Phone 7, and Microsoft's trying to bring that same kind of consistency to the next generation, but they're basically upping the ante, trying to match what Android and iOS are currently bringing to the table. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the things right now, you've got like the, what is it, the Samsung Galaxy 3, you've got the iPhone 4S, and both of those have very powerful processors, very nice screens, all these things that give them a very nice platform on which to play games, and if they're going to be competing against that, and competing specifically against the next iteration of that, because by the time Windows Phone 8 comes out, we're probably going to be on the iPhone 5 or and the uh, the Galaxy 4, whatever we're on, those are just going to be that next step further. So they're actually having to set standards to fight against something that's not even out yet. Exactly, but they've brought them up to what we're currently seeing on Android and iOS, which is about 720p for the resolution and dual-core processors. And I, I think it's interesting that you say bring it up to where they are now because when they're setting those standards, that's the baseline. So I, I find it interesting and also encouraging that for this next iteration of Windows Phone, Windows Phone 8, they're actually going to be setting their bare minimum at really the upper range of phones now. Yeah, and of course, I think they were being a bit facetious when they were talking about this, but technically, because it is the Windows 8 core and all, 
uh, then you can have up to 64 cores. Now, why you would do that is completely beyond me, but from basically an experimental point of view, it's technically possible. And in addition, developers will also have full support of the Havoc physics engine, which is the thing that we use to make console games, and to bring that to a mobile platform using this shared core is incredibly powerful. Now, we mentioned earlier something about Xbox being called the Xbox 8, and I personally have never taken the use of Xbox 720. It's always never made much sense to me that we're going around in two circles, or like a ball is 360, then we make two balls. I It, it just doesn't make any sense. I've always called it the Xbox V Next, and I might finally be vindicated on that, because recently, Microsoft has been buying up all the domain names related to Xbox 8. At first, I mean, Simon, you can look at this. Anytime any company is getting anywhere near releasing a new product and they're still, I guess, even thinking about names or even if they're settling on one, they're going to go out and buy all the domains for anything even related to it. But I, th- I, I think the fact that they're going out and doing it at this point in time, that you really could be leading some uh, some credence to what you've been saying, and it would make sense because Windows 8, Windows Phone 8, Xbox 8, it's a, it's a more cohesive marketing strategy. While that makes sense, there's actually, as one person on MSNBC very astutely put it, I this one had completely passed my mind over, that I believe she pointed out that next year, 2013, will mark the 8th anniversary of the Xbox's launch, which now lends support to my belief that the console will be released next year. The ball is in your court, Alex. You know, Simon, don't believe everything you hear on the news. You know, everybody has their own bias. Maybe MSNBC is biased towards you. But regardless, we'll see what happens. I still believe it's more than a year away. Now, moving on from that, as far as the uh, recent Xbox roadmap leaks are concerned, we saw this release of an incredible treasure trove of documents that were related to kind of the Xbox plans, what they had in terms of how they were going to compete with the next platforms and how they were going to advance functionality uh, for the next generation. They were quickly pulled by Microsoft everywhere they existed, which only further um, led me to believe that they were genuine in some form or fashion. Now, they were old, but I still think they should be taken seriously, like I said last week, to Dan, because what uh, much of what has happened in the intervening time still rings true, and some technologies may have been created, and now they exist, but probably under different names. And so, with that, we're going to now move on quickly because we have a lot of ground to cover to four choices mass effect extended cut ending and now this is going to be very controversial probably going to expect a lot of debate a lot of fire in the comments and emails for this but that listener that emailed in wanted to hear us discuss it so uh, at the end of the day we are um, here for you guys we'll Let's let's kick it off. Alex, what'd you think? Yay for pretty colors. But uh yeah, I mean honestly not much changed. There was little things here and there, 
I mean, having played through it and then also watching the uh, the videos that Dan and John uh, put up just to cover anything I might have missed, it seems more than anything that it was really just filler. They sort of they put in filled a gap here, explained something here, and I mean, I, I, I suppose it made it a, a more cohesive ending. Like there's things where it explained why the Normandy was going through a, a mass relay doing all these things and it sort of explained story by story so there's not as big of plot holes but in the end we're still sort of left with with the same issue you still pick whichever color you want except there is now that that extra option that fourth choice to not play the the game with the catalyst but for me it still it falls short in a way because I still feel like I'm sort of pigeonholed into doing you know, one of these now four as opposed to three choices versus the 16 choices or something like that a couple months before the game came out? Well, I don't know if it was that there would be 16 choices. I think what more of what he said, which people took issue with, was that there wasn't going to be what we ended up with, that there wasn't going to be a simple A, B, and C, that somehow the choices, the myriad of choices that you had made across all three games were somehow going to spit you out into basically like one of 128 possible tree different endings, which made sense because, you know, kept diverging, kept diverging into a very specific and unique path, and that's where you'd wind up. Yeah, I mean, Simon, don't get me wrong. Up until last 10, 15 minutes, whatever, of the game, that's exactly what happened. And the game overall was fantastic. The ending was the only bit that let it down. I had a, a, a wonderful time playing that game. It was lots of fun. All the choices were awesome, as they've always been in the Mass Effect series. I remember just playing through it and running people from Mass Effect 1 or having some choice I'd made in that game affect Mass Effect 3 while combining with something I'd done in Mass Effect 2, and it just all tied in together to make something personalized to my character my playthrough. And I thought that was fantastic, which just makes me even more sad and upset that I, I suppose they couldn't follow through and finish it out. I, I'm, I don't know. It's just it's frustrating for me as a fan, which I, mean, I think that's a, an emotion shared by a lot of other fans. Well, I'm going to weigh in with what I took away from it was that um, nothing really changed. And for, for me, that was a good thing because I immediately then... Uh, went online and bl- fell in line with the indoctrination theory, basically the complex analysis and idea that it's after you get sh- uh, hit by the Harbinger's beam, it's all within um, Shepard's mind, and that it's all a fight between Reapers taking over control of his mind versus having the will to remain free. And to me, all the additional footage and even the new ending... Uh, supported that. Simon, I suppose it makes sense, but to me, at the end of the day, the I mean, the indoctrination theory is is interesting, but I mean, I'll, I'll use the analogy. You're, you're you seem to me sort of like a shock victim who's sort of retreating into into their own little little corner, just saying everything's going to be all right. Everything's going to be all right. It's all okay. It all it all makes sense. And I mean, I think it's wonderful that some fans have pieced it together in such a way that oh, well, this fits with this, and this fits with this, and they've constructed a very solid theory. But at the end of the day, it wasn't written by Bioware. 
it's not part of the game and I just think that the ending falls flat I don't think that there's some hidden, hidden meaning to it but it's it's like the ending of Lost everyone thought it was short everyone thought that there were a lot of things that they left unsaid and really it was up to people to kind of create their own idea of what happened live their own interpretations rather than them just straightforward telling you alright this is what happened to this person this person this person and then therefore having at least some group of people disappointed frustrated upset at them rather they simply let everyone uh, basically go off on their own and think about it which is possibly I think what Bioware could have done here may have best been taken in the wrong wrong way I mean I suppose I think you should be careful making that comparison with Lost though because that series it was the uh, the the build up and the setup for the finale was done in a very different way than uh Mass Effect 3's same promises weren't made for Lost that were made for Mass Effect 3 and I think that context really shifts the way the ending has to be received. Well, I can also say that I was disappointed with what was actually added because basically <laughs> what happened was most of the cinematics remained the same and then essentially there was this really long narration by Hackett with brief flashes of concept art in which he basically just straightforward basically filled in plot hole after plot hole that the players had felt had been exposed by the original ending just kind of like triaging it in a very quick and um, kind of haphazard manner. Yeah, I mean, that's that's why I said filler. I mean, it sort of felt to me like it was sort of a stopgap method where Hackett was just sort of acting uh, as uh, Casey Hudson in this situation where he's just saying, that is done, and this is what happened here, and plug this hole, unplug this hole, unplug this hole. It's like going back to the Greeks, deus ex machina, drop the card in, everything's happy and done and fixed and go home. Yeah, well, this is, again, why, okay, we may dis- differ on the belief on whether the indoctrination theory is valid or not or whatever, but I feel like by doing kind of uh, this brief and somewhat shoddy job, they didn't really change anything, and therefore the theory, whether you believe it or not, can still remain valid. And the one major difference that they made, which is the ability to shoot the child and therefore have him basically cancel the whole thing and ostensibly obliterate life and Liara's recording then gets passed on who eventually defeat the Reapers. That, too, is a projection in Shepard's mind because what it is is uh, essentially him refusing to play by the god-child's rules. He is actively, in the most direct way, defying uh, the parameters set forth by what could be the Reapers attempting to manipulate him into either control or synthesis, in which case the point is moot. And, um, and therefore, I think that's where, that's where that one major point that they added, which wasn't just concept art, which was quickly glossed over, actually does fit in. Now, the indoctrination theory or not, whether you thought they maintained artistic vision or not, whether you took it at face value or not, we definitely would really like to hear what all of you have to say about the ending 
especially as pertains to this extended cut DLC. But we're going to move on. We've been moving pretty quickly this time because we want to get to the heart of the matter, which is our RTX live report. So, where should we start? Oh, right. How about that on Friday, July 6th, Alex and I started off in Atlanta at 5 a.m. Eastern Standard Time and proceeded to drive about 950 miles across the time zone. It took 13 hours all the way to the beautiful city of Austin, Texas. Yeah, it was actually, I think it was a little bit longer than 13 hours, Simon. But, uh, yeah, no, it was, it was a fantastic drive. Simon, you posted up a picture with, uh, with the live blog. We saw a couple of interesting road signs, including, I think it was uh, Davenport, Alabama. That's right. They were just missing two chimps sitting on the road sign. And then we would have the perfect shot. That being said, we got in about 9 to 10 Central Standard Time. Had a great dinner at a local restaurant called Garrido's. And got ready for the next day. And we went to our, our hotel after that and pretty much hit the sack. We got up early next morning, we're ready to go, and quickly made our way to uh, the Austin Convention Center, and uh, went in there, and got in line, I think, Simon, you posted uh, another picture of the line there, and I think this is a phrase I'm going to be using often, because you took, I don't even know how many pictures, you were just documenting the shit out of this thing. Yeah, I, I really wanted to make sure that we had a comprehensive review of the show floor for Anyone on the site who was interested in it, unable to make it, just curious. And so, yeah, I I really wanted to provide complete coverage for the site because I thought it was important. Also, the live blog. Now, they were streaming on Twitch TV, but, um, you know, mobile clients or people who just don't have kind of the capacity to do that could also then just follow along. And that's what I thought was important. Yeah, and so once we got there, we uh, waited in line for a little bit. The doors opened up, and in we went, saw the booths and the whole setup. It was very well done. The organization was nice because right off the bat, right when you went in the door, right there on your left was Halo 4. And so we got in there pretty quickly, but even still, by the time we were in there, the line was probably already an hour long to play that game. That's how excited people were. Yeah, they had the one of the pre-release builds of Halo 4 there. They had a bunch of different stations set up for people to play, and just to the right of the doors opening was Robot Entertainment with Dan Broadbent's game Hero Academy. Yeah, and just getting back to Halo real quick, Simon, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure this was the first time that Halo 4 was playable uh, by the public, right? Yeah, that's right, because it was available at E3, but obviously only available to members of the press. Now, here, people, because of Rooster Teeth's pretty close relationship with Bungie and its successor to the Halo games, 343 Industries, they were able to secure Halo 4 for the first time playable in the hands of your average Joe. Yeah, and I thought that that was uh, that was pretty neat. But once we saw that, we, we walked around the floor for just a little bit, just sort of seeing what was there, and then quickly went and got in line 
for the first panel of the day. Uh, Freddie W. We were actually there first uh, for his panel. Him talking about, with Brandon Latch, how to basically make a name for yourself and how he got his start in becoming one of the top names on YouTube. They related through a lot of personal anecdotes and bad jokes, how they really got their passion working uh, in the early days of YouTube and videos. Real Player was mentioned several times, doing direct-to-DVD movies. It was really from that heritage of doing regular feature film production that they got the motivation to do online videos. Uh, specifically for reasons that many of the Rooster Teeth guys, especially Bernie, say that the reason they wanted to do online movies as well. It's all about feedback. Feedback is critical in terms of especially how quickly it comes around. And as we've always said, if you guys would like to give us feedback, don't be uh, afraid or hesitate to comment below or to go ahead and send us an email at comcastwgg at gmail.com just like Freddie Wong we love getting the feedback we love tailoring the show for all of you guys and we hope we're doing that but we don't know unless you tell us yeah so he had a couple things to mention which were pretty humorous which was that they were really busting ass on doing direct-to-dvd movies and for all their efforts they were paid $250 And in his words, an Applebee's gift card would have been better. And the first feedback that they got that the movie reception-wise was from the Pirate Bay. That their friends were basically torrenting the movie, and uh, that's how they were able to see it. He said YouTube gives you instant and constant feedback. And so, basically, he he showed us also his stats for his website showing us that somehow, despite YouTube being blocked in China, he got 30,000 views of the year, and it's banned there. And, I guess more surprisingly, three views from the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, a.k.a. North Korea, a.k.a. How the hell did that happen? Kim Jong-il was a big fan of their videos. He said that the three movies that were watched had the uh, keywords splinter cell, big guns, and shootout. So, interesting, uh, interesting keyword terms there from most glorious leader. But we're, we're not the ones to judge here. And he also mentioned going back to Hollywood then, now being contacted by big execs in movie studios, especially the fact that this old business has had trouble dealing with how, as he said, celebrities makes you sound like you have a speech impediment, but these kind of what he called middle-class celebrities of the Internet, having trouble making sense of where they should belong in the very rigid and traditional Hollywood kind of social cast. One of the examples that he provided was that he was called by a serious company. They thought this was their big break. And then the execs told them, your job is now to make basically an encyclopedia entry of what all these ref pop culture references means 
so that when the people doing the movie are directing it, they know what is happening. So basically, there were glorified Wikipedia editors. I mean, I know there's a, a bunch of trolls who would uh, love to get that job, but they were a little more nonplussed. Exactly. And so we stayed in the main theater, also known as the Canyon, for the second panel of the day, which was the Rooster Teeth panel. Interesting. It was, uh, it was funny because, obviously, the guys aren't hilarious. I think it was Bernie, Joel, Jeff, Gus, and Matt. They chatted a little bit, answered some questions, showed the episode of Red versus Blue, Season 10. I just want to say, first... He kind of glossed over the major fact that Elijah Wood was in the house. Yeah, that. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Elijah Wood sort of showed up. He's a, actually he's a, a voice actor in this season of Red vs. Blue. So, you know, wasn't that far away from him. It was pretty neat. And once that was done, we remained in our seats and actually got to see a. Uh, a special panel by 343. Yes, we then did advance a couple of rows in the seats, some newly vacated seats, and continued uh, live blogging. And yes, we did uh, 343 Industries release, and they're talking all about Halo 4, and especially in terms of what they have done with Forge. Now, Forge has been so evolved so refined, so enhanced since we saw it in its initial iteration in Halo 3 where you could place basic kind of blocks with each other and they'd have to line up, they would hit each other. You had to really employ some special tricks and know-how to get any more advanced functionality. Yeah, and I think really the, uh, the biggest thing that they showed us, or at least one of them, was something that takes a lot of that hassle that you're talking about, Simon. It takes a lot of that out of the picture. Because they actually they showed us a new magnet feature that wasn't there before. And this makes it a lot easier to make things like bridges or bases or whatever whenever you're putting two objects next to each other and you're trying to line them up. Now it's just a click of the button away from being perfectly aligned so you're not having to worry about some sort of overlap or not quite fitting right. And I thought that was, that was really neat because that's just going to save so many people so much time and energy and frustration. And once that's out of the way, that's just another block that before might have stopped people from participating in Forge building and things like that. I think we're just going to see e- even more creative things come out of Forge. Uh, and obviously with Halo 3, we because of the limited scope of Forge, some of the maps ended up looking very similar. But now... With Halo 4, uh, there's one particular feature I'd like to go and talk about is uh, specific trait zones. They made a big deal about that. And this is going to make pretty much no two map even close to being the same. Because they're basically an area of the map, uh, big or small, in which you can have specific uh, modified player traits. So they showed off an example of the end of a bridge... You could never make the jump onto a high ledge above, but then for the tiny little area of the bridge, they made it 
reduced gravity and increased player movement, and so he could easily then make the jump. Yeah, and before Simon, I mean, this is something you have to set and go into settings, and before the match started, you could set your speed to 300%, set the gravity to 50%, and do, do all these things, but then that would set things up for the entire game. I mean, I remember all kinds of games where we run around chasing elephants at 300% speed and 25% gravity just launching ourselves around but if that's not what you're going for for your whole map it can be kind of frustrating because then you can't get the desired result of being able to jump farther without that being the case throughout now with what you're talking about Simon you can get these little localized zones that don't affect the rest of the map that allow you to do really neat and really creative things like you basically just described a, a man cannon that maybe doesn't shoot as far but still gets the job done in the way you want to do it the converse of that they also showed in which a guy jumped off a giant cliff and of course instantly died when he landed on the ground below well he didn't like that very much so he made a small zone of invulnerability so the moment he landed on there he's completely fine he can make the jump and that's just this, just two tiny areas, maybe a couple of square feet on what are now three different Forge Worlds, three different brand new gigantic maps that are open and available for editing, which just blows my mind what we could be seeing. Well, and on top of that, Simon, they look beautiful. I, mean, I know they were, they were going around in the one they were displaying to us. They were sort of flying around before they started building anything, showing waterfalls and all these things and one of the features we haven't even talked about yet that is going to be really neat and just add to that realism and add to the beauty of it is the dynamic lighting they were talking about yeah dynamic lighting where they had been building this base and demonstrating magnet feature and such and then they switched back to player mode as in like the normal spartan player character and instantly the entire lighting of the base adjusted to compensate because they had actually placed it behind a cliff and I'm guessing in previous versions of Forge it would have been lit regardless because that's just the way they designed the object to look. It just is and it's static and there's basically just bright bloom kind of uh, glowing off of it. But now it reacts realistically with where it's placed. We had lighting differences and we had kind of um, matching of shadow placement and things like that. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's, I mean, that's something that I'm looking forward to because with these maps, they can be really interesting, but if they don't look that great, then it can be something that you sort of catch on and be like, oh, okay, well, you know, that was neat, but uh, on to the next one. I mean, obviously, sort of professionalism and how you present it definitely matters, and I think this just makes it that much easier to make something that looks like it was professionally done. And we had... Frank O'Connor and a couple of the guys from both Certain Affinity, which is the local uh, Austin, Texas-based video game developer firm, as well as people from Microsoft's own in-house studio, 343 Industries. And so uh, there were a couple of um, things that they had to announce besides, obviously, all of the nice Forge things, and those are different new weapons. It's pretty interesting. Some of the things that you may or may not have seen in some of the titles, sorry, some of the trailers for the game, the first one they were talking about was the 
scattershot, which is a forerunner, basically shotgun. Uh, it shoots, and the uh, the scattered rounds actually, I think, it bounce off of whatever you shoot it at. So if you shoot it at a wall, it'll reflect off. And actually, if you kill someone with it, it's a neat little feature is it actually disintegrates someone instead of making them just fall over or launch them as bullets generally do in the Halo series. Next was a Forerunner rifle. I can't I can't remember the name of it, but it basically was a combination of a battle rifle and a, a DMR, where from the hip it would fire just a three-round burst, but when you zoomed in, it would actually fire just a single shot that would be more precise. Yeah, it was called the, the Light Rifle. They also released uh, revealed the Sticky Detonator, which shoots a charge, and uh, it's uh, definitely going to be the source of much trolling in Halo 4. Actually, what you do with it is you launch the uh, basically the, the mini-bomb onto a surface, be that a vehicle or a wall or a Spartan's helmet... And then you have a detonator in your hand. I don't know if anyone listening ever played the Mercenaries series, specifically the original Mercenaries. But uh, one of the favorite things in that game for me, and I know this is the same for Simon, was to place about 10 C4 under a single car. Walk a, you know, walk a good distance away. Want to be safe, obviously. And then click the button and fucking massive explosion sending this car way up in the sky. And the coolest thing is, you know, you'd just be walking around and just click the button and it would happen. That's that's the same thing. That's the way it's going to be in Halo 4 because you launch it, bomb's there, you can wait however long you want, let them think they escape, whatever. Click the button, boom, done. And then uh, the fourth... And final new weapon they were revealed was uh, basically the new shotgun. So uh, reskinned, retextured, revamped. I don't, I'm not sure. I really didn't catch it at the presentation, but I'm not sure determining whether it's cosmetic or if they've actually made any changes to how it'll um, work in terms of gameplay. Yeah, they they were kind of vague on that. I think someone actually asked about that, and I think they directly avoided it so it's it's something that uh we'll see and uh i mean definitely it looks a lot nicer so there definitely is a cosmetic aspect to it whether or not that is the full extent of it or not uh we may have to wait until november 6th to find out a couple more things multiplayer enhancements especially they uh talked in great detail about that now they said that all of these multiplayer experiences take place on board the UNSC Infinity. Now, multiplayer is then subdivided into co-op and competitive. Co-op being uh, Spartan Ops, which I believe they said took place six months after the story of the campaign, and with new weekly episodic content and uh, five missions per week. And on the competitive side... War Games, quote-unquote, is the name of what we consider to be traditional multiplayer. Killing each other, just various um, kind of arena maps, various game types, 
shooting, carnage, etc. They're also going to include what might be very controversial, and certainly there was a question in the, uh, in the Q&A session that directly addressed this kind of trend that Halo's taking. New options to upgrade beyond cosmetics. Up till this point, all the different pauldrons and helmets and knee pads and chest plates, they've all just so, uh, been so that you could look different. But now, armor mods, abilities, weapons, all customizable, all unlockable, all changeable for different types of gameplay. Yeah, but Simon, we have to be careful when we before we start making any real comparisons to Call of Duty. Because, as Frank O'Connor was saying, these are going to be subtle ways that you change the game. I think the analogy he used was, this is going to be like fine-tuning your engine versus going out and buying a different car. Which, I mean, when, you, when you're playing Call of Duty, it's, oh, well, I'll go play as this class, or I'll play as this class. And it has an SMG, or this one has a sniper rifle. Versus in Halo 4, it seems a lot like, well, you know, I'll use this Paul Drinks, it's going to give me this armor ability that I'll be able to use to sort of enhance and modify my current play style. Well, I feel like, and again, this is definitely going to have to be expounded upon significantly uh, closer to release time, but uh, I I really was having a hard time understanding how they're going to differentiate it. Um, I'm sure that Frank O'Connor has kind of an idea in his mind of why but to me it seemed very much like just having perks and different kind of weapon mods on you kind of perks armor abilities perhaps it's a bit more subtle yeah i mean i think it's something that we're gonna have to wait and see really before we can make any sort of final judgment on it because i think it's something that you that has to be experienced and experienced in more than just the short amount of time that a, uh, a playthrough at this sort of event can give you. I think really needs to just sit down, play with it, see what happens. But I don't know if I'm just sort of being naive or what, but I, I'm going gonna to keep the faith and uh, place my trust with Frank O'Connor in this. Speaking of war games, there are going to be new game types. So we're going to have new modes, like one they announced, uh, Regicide, which is a free-for-all version uh, kind of what I felt like was crossed with the VIP game type, wherein the leader uh, in scoring of the match has a giant red tag above their head, like in the game type VIP. And so apparently that made for very chaotic gameplay and hectic gameplay, especially as you get towards the end when people may be tied at 18, 19, 20. Uh, that sort of thing. I said seven. I think the difference between Regicide and VIP was that instead of picking up the uh, title or what, whatever by being the highest scorer, I think in Regicide, what they were saying is that if you kill the king, you get the bounty. Oh yeah, that that is true. So, interesting new gameplay. Again, I believe bounties and contracts were in Black Ops, but again, I'm going to reserve judgment on that. Uh, another game type they talked about was Infinity Slayer a new type of Team Slayer where you build up an quote-unquote ordinance meter by basically succeeding, winning, getting kills, good KD spread, and such. Then you can call in power-ups. I'm not going to say anything like a care package from COD or anything like that. Power-ups and equipment 
that would then be dropped to you and then basically allow you to gain an edge in the competition. I'm gonna keep saying this, I'm gonna kind of bide my time, wait for more info, but I feel like maybe the way they presented it was such that they made a lot of what could have been taken as analogies to Call of Duty. Now, Frank O'Connor actually had an interesting way of explaining about this, which was that they had to evolve for the present day. That not all these people who are coming up into gaming in Halo had played the original Halo or even Halo 2 or possibly even Halo 3 for that matter. They've grown up playing Gears of War, Call of Duty, these types of shooters. And to that end, they really had to bridge the gap, the learning curve in certain ways if Halo was going to stay relevant and stay competitive in this modern era. He said they wanted to make people more familiar with the interface, make the game more approachable. And he he tried to play off small things like grenade indicators as these kind of things that just make it easier for you to assimilate and start playing right away in Halo. And I mean, Simon, specifically with the uh, the grenade indicators, that was that in Sprint, those were two points that uh, a couple of questions were asked about and people were making kind of a big deal about that. And for me personally, that's just something nice that is included as sort of a, a convenience because I know it's not traditional quote-unquote Halo. It's not sort of what's been there but at the same time it's just it's nice it's just something that's that's useful I mean bottom line it's useful because something for me in Halo that's frustrating is say you're playing in Blood Gulch or whatever in Halo 1 you're trying to get to a warthog or maybe even up to the cliffs and you don't have a vehicle you're just walking and that's going to take forever I mean, they have the teleporter to help save some time, but even still, you're going to be walking for a while, and there's not much you can do about it. You're, you know, you're a pretty simple, easy target just sitting there. Now, with Sprint included, you're able to cover a lot more ground. I think what they said is even if you don't have a vehicle, you can still cover a lot of ground pretty quickly. And for me, that just makes for more fun gameplay, because in, then you're not going to have to worry about that one sniper up on the cliff who's just picking off everybody in the valley below because they can't get to a vehicle or can't get to cover because they're not quick enough. Yeah, I do certainly remember uh, some instances in Halo 3 multiplayer when uh, you're basically running at that same kind of decent clip and there's a guy shooting at you uh, and they're all making their impact. You're definitely noticing that. You're trying to get behind cover, but you're just maybe jump a little to help you, but just can't get there fast enough. If you had a bit of sprint, you might be able to tip the odds in your favor a little of surviving, maybe even change the dynamic of an entire game by doing that. So by they're adding more variables to it, which is going to make it dynamic, more interesting, but we've certainly seen the danger of adding too many variables, a.k.a. Call of Duty. So some other questions that, that were asked were, um, will we get different types of weather or time of day settings? No. They said the dynamic lighting was good enough. Well, yeah, I, mean, I think you should just be clear there. That's 
people were asking about that in Forge. When they're setting up maps, creating things, they're wondering if they would have control of weather settings as well as time of day and other lighting. And basically, yeah, I mean, as you were saying before, their short answer was no. They explained this by saying that the dynamic lighting would be a very powerful tool. You'd be able to do a lot with it to change your map around and to sort of differentiate it. But you would not have a, this is noon button, or it's going to be at 4.30 button. It's like more having to do with shadows and how you use those on the map. Obviously, one of the major questions that uh, we've posed, I think in one of the earlier podcast episodes, will Halo 4 really try and stay true to the existing storyline and the gameplay and the type of game that Halo really is and was established by Bungie? And Frank O'Connor responded that there's a lot of pressure on the team. They understand it and that ultimately they're going to do what they believe is the best service to the fans and let the fans decide for themselves if it if it really rang true or not. That was his kind of diplomatic answer to that. Yes, I mean, with all of this, Simon, I think really the uh, bottom line in discussion answer is, well, we'll just have to wait and see. Exactly. Next question that struck a very resonant tone with me. To what extent will the book canon be included and expounded upon? And me, you've heard me talk week after week about secondary material, comics, novels, etc. Frankie was very specific in saying that the Greg Bear Forerunner uh, trilogy, as well as the Karen Travis trilogy, will be key series for people to read if they want to get a much deeper understanding of Halo 4 right off the bat. And I, I remember specifically he said something along the lines of that it won't be necessary for you to understand, but that those who are, and these are his direct words, invested in the series and, end quote, that sort of thing. And I just turned and looked at Simon, and I'm like, you. And he's just saying, you do all these things, if you're reading all these things, if you're that deep into it, you're going to have a much deeper understanding of the game. And going forwards, they're going to tie it in very closely versus... I mean, the, the books in the past have mostly been going and, like, sort of novelizing the games or writing something sort of way off somewhere else. But now it sounds like they're going to be tied in much, much closer and much, much tighter to the actual plot of this new Halo trilogy. Yeah, so that was kind of more of a story aspect. We have a couple more technical questions, which are that uh, will there be an undo and redo for Forge, which obviously some of the more advanced map makers might really, really rejoice if it were possible, but alas, um, Frankie said no. And the reason for that, they they did explain it a little bit more than just no, because they said for undos, the only real reason for them are if you're trying to line something up right and you mess it up, or if you throw something in or you add something you don't want, and he, they were saying something like, you know, 90% of the time, that's going to be the situation. And both of those situations have actually been solved uh, through a combination of the magnetic tool for lining things up and getting it so that you're not having to put something in, move it around to get it just right, and then figure out it's crap and then delete it. Or if you add something in, you can just 
that you don't want, you can just delete it. So between the delete button and the magnet feature, they feel that undo-redo is not really necessary. I should also add about the delete that there's a, a specific highlighting feature when you really get into a kind of a dense clump of material or kind of objects that it now highlights the individual piece that you are staring at and specifically lists it by name. So I'm now looking at a fusion coil. I'm now looking at that fusion coil. I'm now looking at this palette. That way, there's no kind of guesswork on which nanometer to the left or to the right will you hit this one or that one. It'll tell you and show you exactly what you're doing. This next question was actually one that I think a lot of people in the audience were all wanting to hear. And that is, will there be a multiplayer beta of Halo 4? Again, Frankie said no. But he explained that they were really better work off working on other avenues. And I'm, I'm, I know there's a lot of telemetry data and kind of heat map information, those sorts of things on the back end that need to be collated and collected. But I think he said they felt like they were making such a radical departure from what the previous kind of methodology has been that they felt their time was better invested uh, working on more internal design. Well, and one of the things he said was when you're doing a beta, if people like it, they're not going to say, oh, well, I like this feature and I like this feature. They'll just say, like, oh, more of the same. You know, this was good. And because they're they're sort of they're adding on all these new things and they're making a new game, they're definitely keeping it in the same Halo spirit and it definitely looks like a Halo game. But they are adding in new features and new ways to play and all this new stuff. And I think they want a little bit better response, constructive criticism, that sort of thing. And that's something that they're going to get a lot more from internal playtesting. In addition, he did. He was quick to say that it's not like members of the outside public aren't actually getting their hands on the game and trying it out. There are, in fact, a lot of people, he said, that were able to get their hands on it that are not from the dev team so that they're not kind of sitting within their ivory tower thinking that everything's perfectly fine when the moment it gets released to the general public a million things start breaking from what he said it seems like they are still actively but in a much more uh, kind of closed and controlled manner still getting feedback yeah I think he was saying it it was funny because he was looking around the room he's like yeah you know probably decent number of people in here have they're just not able to raise their hands because of NDAs. And if they raise their hand, that will be taking down names. So basically that was the sum total of the 343 panel. And so that's pretty much our experience with panels on the first day. As I said, we did live blog it, and there are a ton of pictures of almost every square inch of the main exhibition hall. And it's available, it's just a regular blog So if you go to the blogs tab on uh, wikigameguides.com, it will be there. As well as day two, which is uh, on the front page, I believe. We'll move on to what happened uh, today. Yeah, I mean, today was uh, just as exciting as yesterday. We actually, we got up a little bit earlier today because of a special little thing that 
the guys at Rooster decided to do. They actually decided to go ahead and use the available manpower they had at their disposal to go ahead and shoot quite a large scene for an upcoming series they're working on. They're actually able to shut down something like five or six blocks on Congress Avenue, you know, which is just a couple of streets over from where the convention center was. And they had all of us out there for, I think it was something like two hours. We got there about 6.15. We're shooting through till about 8, 8.30. And I, I don't know, Simon, I don't know about you, but I had a blast. Yeah, it was about 1,500 people and six blocks in the heart of downtown Austin, the Congress, the street leading right up to the state capitol building. And so just a huge crowd of people standing all around, milling about, and uh, people with megaphones telling us what to do. Basically, what we were told was that we were supposed to act normal, act like busy city pedestrians, walk across the street, down the sidewalk, chat with each other, take pictures, but suddenly... As soon as we're given the order, we all just fall straight over. And that's what we did. Over and over and over again. And eventually, they got us to all condense around the film truck. And they shot some promo scenes for, for this upcoming series of all of us condensed down to one block. We were pretty much like sardines in a can at this point, with Joel Heyman standing above us, scratching his head rather confusedly. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a pretty interesting premise for this new series. We're not going to spoil anything, but uh, we're just going to let people know what was told to us, I guess, is more of a teaser than anything, was that it's a new series they're working on because they, they got sort of tired of doing their Richard Teeth shorts where they were just sort of one-offs so now they're looking to do uh, more series based things because obviously they have tons of experience with that they have uh, 10 years now of Red vs. Blue well 10 seasons of Red vs. Blue and so this is going to be a new series called Day 5 where basically Joel's trying to stay awake or else he will die yeah apparently some whatever illness, virus, unknown, if you fall asleep, you will die. So the last few straggling survivors have to figure out how to stay alive or stay awake as long as possible. And uh, that's been a long time, starting to get a little delirious. And that's pretty much all that was told to us. Really excited to see it. It's a really interesting premise. And we're all in it. So that's always great to hear. Alex, we saw one other thing, which was what Chris has been working on in lieu of past cast because Joel is tired of being Hitler. Uh, we saw a little bit of what was called uh, Nature Town. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. It was, I don't know, I don't know what to call it, almost like a South Park-esque in terms of the animation because it was basically just little pictures of animals going around and they'd sort of would move the mouth as they voiced them, but it was it, the, the dialogue. Uh, I mean, the, the the camera work and everything was important too, but it was really just the uh, the writing on it was clever and funny. It was a back and forth, and it was it was definitely it was entertaining. Not really able to say much more than that without just kind of repeating it word for word. So instead, 
what we're going to do is go on to kind of some of the questions that were asked because they opened it up pretty quickly just for questions and obviously there are a lot of people with questions on their mind. A couple of the important ones were the writing for RVB has always been very high quality so kind of what was the impetus to bring on another writer? And I mean basically what Bernie said there was that he'd just always been a fan of uh, Eddie's work and he's just wanted to work on other things because he's been working on Red vs. Blue now for 10 seasons. He's been the exclusive writer on it for almost all of that time and obviously that's incredibly time consuming and as he wants to branch out and work on more and various series and projects he just he needs time and so basically he bought that with Eddie. Exactly and this is Eddie Rivas who was on the Rooster Teeth podcast for the Mass Effect spoiler cast. He was there kind of part of that discussion. Another question that I thought was very intriguing was how drastically has CGI changed the way that they've done uh, kind of the entire process of Red vs. Blue as compared to uh, the more conventional machinima? And uh, their answer was that with animation, it's, it's got to be done months and months in advance. They have to know exactly what they're doing. They have to have it all scripted out. They have to know exactly what they're doing because Monty has to basically choreograph that. They've got to get the animators working on that. Um, the lead time is significant, whereas with Machinima, they've said previously, said it again, if there's a line that we need dropped or a character added, we can do that on the fly. Yeah, I mean, basically, what Matt said was uh, it's not that big of a difference. If you need to make a change in Machinima, you can do it that day. You only need a little bit more time for animation, only uh, a month or two. So I think that was just that was the big difference they really they harped on was just the the lead time and just how much farther in advance they had to plan things out. I think they said this was actually the first season that they've actually had the entire script set out from the very beginning because I think what they usually do is sort of have a general plan and sort of fill in shit as they go. And that was also another reason to bring on another writer is that it's the 10th season of Red vs. Blue. I mean, they've been writing and producing for a very long time and that's a lot of backstory and established canon to pour through and uh, really, you're going to need to start bringing in more dedicated staff to just keep track of all of that. They even, Bernie even mentioned that Monty, to a certain extent, is a writer because he writes in kind of how a character's attitude is and what their rationale is, what their motivations are, into how they move, how they react, how they fight, all that sort of thing. And so, much of the other. Most of the other questions were not terribly interesting, but the final interesting comment I think they had to make was that they announced Immersion Season 2. They had maybe leaked something on Twitter the night before I had seen that, but they definitely went ahead and uh, confirmed it at the panel today. And they said the reason that they had had no real mention of it before is because they did the first season of it, it was successful, but that was all the concepts they've had, and they've slowly been coming up with ideas and other things that they can do, and now they're, they're ready to go ahead and do that, and they're actually going to 
have a new set of test subjects. This time around, it's actually going to be Gavino and Ragequit, a.k.a. Gavin and Michael. That's uh, that's pretty much it in terms of the panels. Now, we went to uh, a couple of other events. We talked with a lot of different people, heard from a lot of different people, particularly as pertains to how to get into new media and this entire industry that's evolving and growing and changing so rapidly and that might even be an understatement in and of itself and really they said you know you've got to anticipate something that just simply does not exist yet and that the way that these guys got into it rooster teeth some of the rooster teeth original community members and a lot of members of the original industry their experience was worlds apart from how you might even conceive of entering something similar in today's age. People who are basically invested in education and basically trying to help the next generation of content producers navigate basically what is an increasingly old and antiquated mechanism, a.k.a. Hollywood, corporations and those sorts of things and and basically to sum up their advice it is to network use social media to network and just do a, a lot of what you like to do and just put it out there and just make it available for people and just talk to people just make sure your stuff is out there and that you're communicating I think we should talk a little bit more about the uh, the show floor right now because we kind of got to Halo and then Robot Entertainment and then we kind of dropped off and got on that whole tangent about uh, the panels for a while. In addition, on the show floor, there were booths from, as we mentioned before, Handelabra with uh, GameMinder, uh, Penny Arcade was there, Mega64 obviously making their presence known, Plantronics with their special... Headsets, Razor with their accessories, Rooster Teeth obviously having their giant um, merchandising area taking over much of the central space, as well as uh, a lot of other smaller independent kind of vendors of geek shirts. Yeah, I know, uh, I think it was Glenn's Tees was there uh, and a couple others. They're just clever little things that uh, looked to be pretty funny looks like good buys looks like uh, everybody was enjoying it and definitely buying the stuff yeah and uh, up at the uh, front of the entire exhibition hall was basically this giant raised dais with about 10 high performance it will look to be alienware gaming pcs um where they would hold occasional tournaments like griffball was the first thing that kicked it off they moved pretty quickly to Tekken. Such inane things as we even saw today, this afternoon, Alex, a Quop tournament. Yes, a, 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 a Quop 100-meter relay. And, uh, that was a sight to behold, to say the least. And uh, as well as other things like uh, Daisy, which really has caught fire, particularly uh, among the uh, Rooster Teeth crowd, I'm told. And... Let's see, what else was there? The Achievement Hunter Lounge, which was basically a setup of a ton of different Xboxes, uh, some system linked to play Halo Reach maps, horse maps, 
some System Linked to play Minecraft, and just a couple of other independent gaming vendors here and there. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was interesting. It was a nice mix of sort of interactive areas where you could play games or things like booths where you could actually chat with people about either the gaming industry or the entertainment industry, you know, like with Mega64. And then, of course, obviously plenty of places to go ahead and get your merch. So, I think we're missing one of the most crucial aspects of this entire experience, which single-handedly made our first day there. And we got so lucky to be a part of it. It was the Geeks Who Drink Trivia Night yeah, it was. Uh, we, were, we were pretty lucky because uh, we we left the hall on the first day a little early. We wanted to run out and grab something to eat and get back quickly. We definitely knew we had to get in line for uh, the Geeks Who Drink because I remember, uh, I think they said something like it would be the first 200 or something like that. We definitely knew there was going to be high interest, so we wanted to try and get back in time. But when we got there, we were probably somewhere around 170 in line and uh, Jack Patillo who was running it for Rooster Teeth had to come out and say that uh, they actually had less room than they thought they were looking at closer to 120 and that he was actually talking to a group of people about 20 people up from us so wasn't even addressing us but was saying that uh, they could wait around if they wanted to but uh, they didn't have a, a very good chance of getting in that he would try and do his best but uh no promises sort of thing and with that you know a lot of people started to started to just move out and go to you know greener pastures whatever and you know slowly we moved up moved up and we decided hey you know it's just a little while longer we'll just we'll sit it out see what happens see if we can get in and you know don't know what uh what lucky star we got that day but we were actually one of the uh simon and i were the uh I think it was the one of the four last people let in. I think it was us two, and then the two guys behind us with the very, very last people let in. We actually formed a team with those guys, and uh, we actually did quite well, Simon, didn't we? Oh, yeah. Um, we were only three points down from first place. We were second, Team Lemon Slushy, spelled with a Y on the end, trademarked. And uh, we were so close. And a lot of the questions, I mean, uh, I was really impressed with how much our team was able to put together in combination. I know that each of us, definitely, every single one of our team members had one kind of particular shining moment of glory when they swept in and basically gave us points that we knew that the other five people on the team just wouldn't have known otherwise at all. Yeah, and uh, I know Geeks Who Drink are a company that organizes these sort of trivia things all across the country. I think they said something like they're all, they're in close to 20 states. Simon and I know we were actually we were chatting with John about it, and he was saying that uh, they actually participate in uh, Geeks Who Drink events in Colorado, so if you guys are listening, go ahead and look them up online, see if they're around you. Because for us, I don't know, it was definitely it was a very fun event, and we were actually quite upset uh, looking up that uh, they don't actually have any in Atlanta. That we kind of made a very, very abridged version of 
our complete thoughts and experiences of RTX, but uh, just expanding upon RTX. But really, uh, as we leave, it's kind of bittersweet. Had some great experiences there, and uh, want to thank the incredible people at Rooster Teeth who put it all together. Um, namely the ones uh, in charge of making sure this event went off well. That's uh, Barbara Dunkelman, community manager, and Gus Sarola, who kind of resigned his actual post as IT lead, kind of does uh, an odd mix of RTX podcast and a bit of tech support these days. Yeah, I know uh, Kara was also involved as well. I mean, and as, as well as the the entire uh, Rooster Teeth staff. I mean, I know you said, you know, thank them, but certain members specifically. But, I, I mean, I, I think each and every member of Rooster Teeth needs to be commended for what they did. They all put on an awesome convention, and I'd just like to thank them for having us here in Austin. Yeah, really. It's, uh, it was an incredible experience, and... Uh, Definitely going to be coming back next year. I know John on his Twitter expressed his interest at coming next year as well. And uh, hopefully next year, given our, our their recent success with E3 as media, hopefully then we can apply for media badges as well. Yeah, and uh, you know, hopefully we'll see some people from Wiki Game Guides there next year. We'll uh, maybe get a, a meetup going or something like that but definitely just get some more interaction and just make it a uh, an even better time next year exactly so we're going to close tonight and one more time i remind you to comment below send us any emails and your thoughts if you were there what you felt about it uh at comcastwgg at gmail.com subscribe on itunes etc etc so close tonight from the Convention Center in Austin, Texas. Simon Wu. Alex Miller. Good night.